0: we're going to be walking through the first section of uh city church class with you you'll also get to hear from our uh, one other pastor and one pastor in training in the next couple weeks of the series so you'll kind of get to hear from all of us a little bit uh but important things first i already mentioned the coffee and the donuts uh, restrooms also sometimes are important uh, if you go straight out this door you can go out either door but if you go that way at the end of the hall the men's bathroom and then you turn around the corner and the women's bathroom is right there so if you need to use the restroom that's where it is um, basically the way this class is set up is if you go to our website and you go to uh, I believe it's vision or maybe mission I should probably know that, but I don't uh, If you go to our website to one of the very important pages, what you will find is uh, a, a statement about who we are. We call that our mission statement. It says that we are a Jesus-centered family on mission. So there's kind of three parts to that. Jesus-centered, meaning we want everything we do to be centered around the person and work of Jesus and motivated by that family is a lot of what we talked about this morning if you were there that we believe church should be a network of meaningful relationships that really contribute to our growth as a disciple of Jesus and then on mission simply meaning we exist for the good of Knoxville and the world around us we want to see more and more people be invited into that by what we do on a daily basis and so that's kind of the three parts of who we are as a church we're going to break this class down into those three parts so this week we'll talk all about what it means to be Jesus-centered Next week we'll talk all about what it means to be family. The following week we'll talk all about what it means to be on mission. Does that make sense? So we'll cover those kind of in succession. Um, It's designed to give you a picture of who we are as a church. Uh, At the very end of the class, if you decide to, you can become a member. And so basically what you will do is you'll read through, uh, look at your booklet on your uh, table, by the way. If you flip all the way to the back, I believe, Not all the way to the back. Most of the way to the back. uh, There is a... It says membership covenant on it. Um, At least I think it's there. Yeah, there it is. It's got bullet points on it. Um, That is basically... If you decide to become a member that's what you're signing up for. We want to make sure that that's really clear to people. Uh, and so if you read through that, that's kind of what you're saying uh, you agree to when you become a member of our church. So feel free to give that a read. Basically, we'll be hitting on most of that as we work through the class. If you're curious about any of it, there'll also be plenty of opportunity for you to ask questions. But that's basically what you're saying if you decide to become a member. But as I've been mentioning on Sundays, uh, you do not have to become a member at the end of the class. You might be here just because you're curious about things. You want to ask some questions or whatever there's no pressure to become a member at all but at the end of the class there is the option too, so you can elect to become a member if you'd like a couple more things so as we go through there uh, there's fill in the blanks for each week uh, you don't have to fill those out. Somebody, <laughs> Ryan was asking earlier, like, should you go ahead and guess what all of them are? And I was like, yes, guess what all of them are. And then if you get 60% or above, you get to become a member. If you don't, then you, <laughs> sorry. You know, you just wasted your See time. See you next week. But basically what those are, I just know for me, especially because this class is in the afternoon, I hit that mid-afternoon lull where i mm. like very much want to fall asleep, so I'm going to try not to do that as I teach the class. That may be the case for you as well. Those blanks are just there to help you remember stuff and to help you not fall asleep. So feel free to follow along with those blanks or not, whatever you want to do, Uh, but we'll just be working our way through those each week and it might give you a way to help focus in this afternoon lull. very last thing is that uh, each week, basically each week what we'll do is have about 45 to 50 minutes of teaching, uh, and then the rest of the time is just devoted to Q&A. So any questions that you have, if we work through this stuff and you're like, man, I want to know more what they meant by that. Or when they said that, what exactly were they referring to exactly? Or if you've just got questions in general, it might not have anything to do with the stuff that we say during this class. It may just be things that you're wondering about when it comes to our church. We want you to have every opportunity to ask that. So no question is a stupid question. We promise to try not to have stupid answers. We will try to be informed. But any questions you have, jot them down in the margins as you go, write them down somewhere. And then the last half, really as many questions as you guys have, we will devote the end of each week to that. Make sense? Okay. So Marcus is gonna kick us off by answering the question, what is the gospel?
1: Yeah, so Kent kind of already said it. The first piece of our identity as a church um, is that we are Jesus-centered. And when we say Jesus-centered, we're referring to the gospel. And as a church, we want everything we say and do uh, to kind of be centered around and driven by the good news of the gospel. And really, the two other pieces um, of who we are, family and mission, are all a result of this gospel. So that begs the question, what exactly is the gospel? Because it seems like a very important thing to kind of get off Right at the bat, right. So, who knows what the word gospel means? Mm-hmm. That was too quick. That was too, right. too quick. Someone else, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> quick. No, exactly. That's exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. So, yeah. So, at a basic uh, level, the word gospel simply means good news. Simply means good news. Now, the English origins of the word are from "go" or "god," meaning good, and "spell" meaning story, message, or news. So, before Christianity is a philosophy or a way of life or even a religion. It's first an announcement. It is first an announcement. So what exactly is that announcement? Well, first to understand that and how the gospel announcement is good news, you need to understand the situation we're kind of in that requires uh, this good news. So let's start talking about sin. So according to Scripture, we live in a
0: good world gone bad. That should be the next blank there on your page. We live in a good world gone bad. So God designed the world to work uh, in a certain way. He, de- he designed everything just as it should be in the beginning. That's the story that we get in the beginning of Genesis. There was no suffering. There was no pain. There was no crime. There were no Kardashians in the beginning. That everything just worked exactly like it should work. Relationships were Right. The, the earth itself was right. Everything was working just the way it was designed to work. But as the story goes, things did not stay that way for long. Before long, human beings sin against God. That's the language that the Bible uses. Now, we have to pause here and talk for a second about what sin is and what it isn't. When most people hear the word sin, they think something I'm not supposed to do. I think that's most people's operational understanding of the word sin. Something I'm not supposed to do. And while that's not technically wrong, it's also not complete. It's not a full understanding of sin. It's not the understanding of sin that we get from the scriptures. It's actually much more nuanced, more complex than that. So if we're going to understand why the gospel is good news, we need a fuller understanding of what sin is. We need a fuller understanding of what sin is. So first, sin is not just a breaking of the rules. Sin is not just a breaking of the rules. Uh, Another way of saying that is that sin is not bad because it's against the rules. Sin is against the rules because it's bad. And that's actually, there's a, a pretty significant difference there between those two ideas. Sin is not bad because it's against the rules. Sin is against the rules because it's bad. So... God did not just arbitrarily come up with a list of things that he decided would be off limits. That's not how it worked. He didn't just decide, you know, this thing and this thing and this thing seem fun for human beings to do, and so I'm going to say that they're off limits to these people. Rather, God designed the world, like we just said, God designed the world to work in a certain way, designed it to function in a certain way, and he knows that there are certain things that break that good design that actually break down the ability of the world to function the way that it should. And so, appropriately, when he thinks of those things, when he thinks of the things that cause the world not to function like it should, he says of those things, hey, this is sin because it breaks down the ability of the world, world to function. So uh, this has been a while ago, but when we first moved to Knoxville to start the church, uh, my son, Wit was six months old. <laughs> and at the time, we spent so much money every month trying to find toys that he would like to play with. And despite our best efforts, despite everything that we thought would make him happy in terms of what we bought him to play with, the thing that Wit wanted to play with was trash cans. That was his favorite thing to play with in the world. He would crawl over to the trash cans, he would knock them over, and then he would play with whatever came out of them when he did that. That was his absolute favorite thing to do. And so uh, eventually what Anna and I would do is we had to make a rule for him. He barely understood language yet, but it was like we had to make a rule for him where we said, hey, playing with trash cans is against the rules it's against the rules in this household we don't play with trash cans uh now to wit i'm sure that felt like the most crushing thing possible right he probably thought why in the world would they want to keep me from the one thing that makes me happiest in the universe which is playing with trash cans but what he didn't understand what he could not wrap his mind around at the time was that if he played with trash cans and we had trash all over our floors, and he was playing with it, and then he was putting his hands in his mouth. What was going to happen was our house was going to be filthy, he was going to get sick, we were going to get sick, and everything about life was going to go worse for him and for us as a result of him playing with these trash cans. And so what we did as his parents is we correctly said, hey, we have a no playing with trash cans rule in this household because it goes better for everybody when we don't play with trash cans. So the reason I bring that up is because I legitimately think that a lot of people, when they think about this idea of sin, they think about sin the way that my son thought about trash cans. They think, this is the thing that I want most in the world that would make life better for me, and I just don't understand why God would say it's off limits. But that's not what sin is. What sin is, is that God sees the way that the world works best, and then he correctly says, based on that, hey, these things are off limits. These things are not going to go well for you. These things are not going to lead to the most flourishing in your life or culture at large, their life. And so appropriately, based on that, I'm going to say, hey, these things are off limits. That's the idea behind sin. Now, in order to have a fuller understanding of what sin is, I think it helps to break it down in two ways. Uh, There are sins of commission and there are sins of omission. Sin is both commission and omission. Commission, which are things we do that we shouldn't, and omission, which are things we don't do that we should. Sins of commission are things we do that we should not do, and omission are things we don't do that we should. So, stealing from my neighbor is wrong. That's a sin of commission. It's something I did that I shouldn't have done. I didn't actually do it, just to be clear. But stealing from my neighbor, in theory, is something that I did that I shouldn't have done. But so it's also sin to see my neighbor in need and have the ability to help and choose not to help. That's a sin of omission. It's something I omitted to do that the scriptures call me to do, which is love my neighbor as myself. Make sense? So you have sin of commission and sin of omission. Uh, Second, The second kind of framework for understanding sin holistically is that sin includes our head, our heart, and our hands. Sin includes our head, our heart, and our hands. So sin at a head level is when we think wrong things. Sin at a head level is when we think wrong things. Sin at a heart level is when we love wrong things. And sin at a hands level is when we do wrong things. So just to understand how this plays itself out, take the sin of lust, for example. At a head level, it is wrong to have thoughts of intimacy with someone you are not married to. That is lust. That's a a sin at a head level. At a heart level, it is also wrong to be in a frame of mind where you love and consistently long after intimacy with somebody you're not married to. That's sin at a heart level. And then finally, at a hands level, it is wrong to act on that lust and actually be unfaithful to your spouse or to interact sexually with someone that you're not married to. But all three of those, according to the Bible, are sin, not just the sin that's at hands level. So for just a little bit, let's talk about what sin does exactly. Why is sin bad? Why is it off limits? I think there's at least three reasons for it. First, sin breaks relationship with God. It breaks our relationship with God. So think with me about Adam and Eve in the garden, if you're familiar with that story. When they sin, as soon as that happens, there's immediately this relational distance between them and God. He comes into the garden and he says, hey, where are you? What happened here? There's immediately this distance between them and God. It says they hid from God after they sinned, Adam and Eve did. Because they sinned, things got awkward. Things got tense. The relationship was broken between them and their creator. They weren't right anymore. That's because sin, by its very nature, separates. It breaks relationship with God. Second, sin also breaks relationship with each other. Sin also breaks relationship with each other. So sin doesn't just break our relationship with God. It also inhibits our relationship with one another. So when God comes to find Adam and Eve in the garden and he says, hey, what happened here? Why did you eat from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? Uh, What immediately does Adam do? He blames his wife, right? It's like the first sitcom ever, right? (laughs) So the first thing he does is say, well, actually it was the woman you put here with me, God. So it's kind of her fault. And if I'm honest, it's a little bit your fault too, God, because you put her here to be with me. So immediately there's this broken relationship between Adam and Eve. Not just between them and God, but also between them and each other. Sin has broken their relationship with each other. And then lastly, sin breaks God's design for the world sin breaks God's design for the world. So because sin is now a part of our reality, the world does not function like it was meant to function anymore. Because of greed, a lot of the world lives in poverty. Because of an obsession with sex, the sex slave industry exists in the world. So sin doesn't just affect us and our relationships with God, It doesn't just affect us and our relationships with each other. It also breaks down God's good design for how the world was ought to function. So why don't, Marcus, you talk a little bit about what the gospel is and what the gospel does in response to all of that.
1: Yeah, so hopefully you're kind of beginning to see how sin really disrupts a lot of things. It disrupts the human condition. Um, So pretty much all of the brokenness we experience uh, in our own lives and in our world is a result of sin. And that's precisely where the good news of the gospel comes in. Um, Though God had no obligation to do so, he chose to set in motion a plan to unbreak everything that we broke. Um, And the way he does this is by coming to earth as the God-man Jesus. Now, Jesus came to earth um, and lived his entire life without committing any sins. No sins of commission, no sins of omission, no head-level, heart-level, or hands-level sin. He walked among us perfectly and sinlessly. Um, And then, because he had no sin of his own, he was able to take on the sins of the entire world. And this is what the Bible would call atonement, which sounds very complex, um, but the idea is that uh, anytime there is a wrong... It has to be paid for or atoned for. So if, let's say, hypothetically, um, you invite me over to your house and we're kicking it, and then I just decide to, like, push over a lamp and break it. Now, a few things will occur. Mean, yeah, yeah, well, that's, yeah, usually, I yeah, I usually break people's lamps. Um, very weird. <laughs> very weird thing that you do. Um, so a few things uh, uh, that will happen because of that, right? So first... Uh, Either I will need to atone for what I just broke, right? Because I just, I, just, I knocked over your lamp and broke it like it shattered. Um, either I atone for it by paying for it, right? Or you atone for the lamp by either paying for it or replacing the lamp itself, or you'll just be kind of chilling in the dark and with no lamp or light or anything. See, the nature <laughs> of wrongs is that they must be atoned for by somebody. In the same way, the nature of our sin against God is that it must be atoned by someone, but we're not able to do that, right? So who ends up doing that? It's it's God. God ends up atoning for our sin Himself. He takes on the sin of the entire world. First um, Peter two twenty four actually describes it like this. He says, "He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that way that we might die to sin." And live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. But it doesn't stop there. If Jesus, if if all Jesus did was atone for our sin, we would just be back to neutral with God. We we would have no hope of a relationship with him. So what Jesus does through his cross and resurrection is actually more than just atone for our sin. He actually gives us something else. Look at First 2 Corinthians 5. It says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So not only does Jesus take away our sin, not only does he take away our sin, but he gives us his righteousness. So not only does Jesus take away our sin, he gives us his righteousness. So, God not only sees us as being without sin, but he also sees us as if we had lived a completely right and just life, which is so beautiful. Jesus gives us his perfect performance. So when God the Father looks at each of us, everyone in this room, he sees us, he sees beloved sons and daughters. He sees us just as if we had done everything right um, that Jesus had done for us. Now, if that right there, is not the gospel i don't know what is right that is fantastic news but that's not all not only has god taken away our sin and given us his righteousness but through all of that he is now doing what the bible is called reconciling all things to himself he's reconciling all things to himself so by giving people the ability uh, to live back in right relationship with him He is slowly returning the world to how it was before sin ever entered the picture. By giving people the ability to live generously with their money instead of being swallowed up in greed, he's slowly chipping away at the roots of poverty across the world. By giving people the ability to view sex properly and not pervert it into something all of life encompassing, he is slowly knocking down the foundations under sex trafficking and sexual abuse across the globe. God, through what he accomplished through Jesus on the cross, is slowly but surely putting the world back together. With all that in place, we're now ready for the definition of the gospel. Here it is. The gospel is that Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, is reconciling all things to himself. Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, is reconciling all things to himself now the two different pieces of that are very important the gospel is both the life and death and resurrection of jesus and him putting back the world um, together through that both are important if you if you view the gospel as only being about the life death and resurrection of jesus christianity tends to be only a personal individualistic relationship with god with no real implications for the world around us and if you view the gospel only as jesus putting the world back together You have a plan to engage the world, yes, but without any real power or substance for dealing with the main problem in the world, which is sin. Um, So you need both. So Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, is putting the world back together.
0: So with that kind of in place, now that we have an understanding of what the gospel is— uh, I don't know about you guys, but something that I have noticed, especially here in the Bible Belt, here in the South, is that people often confuse the gospel with something that we might just call religion. Those are actually different things at their core. I can't tell you how many conversations I've been in where people have an objection to Christianity, but when I actually get them to explain more of what they object to, it's actually that they just object to religion of some sort. It's it's not the gospel at all. It's actually something altogether different. So, so much of people's objection to Christianity has more to do with an objection to religion, I think it's the blank on the page. So, if we are going to be able to love the city of Knoxville well, if we're going to be able to tell them about the good news of Jesus that we just unpacked, then it becomes crucial that we learn how to distinguish, how to discern between the gospel and religion how to actually understand the difference between those two things. And I will say the most obvious form that religion tends to come in here in the South is something we'll call
1: self-righteousness. And Marcus is going to walk us yeah. through what that is. Yeah, so to understand the difference uh, between the gospel and religion, let's first look at uh, one of the classic parables that Jesus tells about it. Turn to Luke 18. I don't know if that's, is that in the, is that in there? No, maybe not. Uh, Luke 18, 9 then. <laughs> can open your Bible apps, however it works. Uh, I can also just read it. Uh, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous um, and treated others with contempt. So that in a sentence is how Jesus defines religion, trusting in yourself or something you've done, um, that you're righteous and treating others with contempt. Jesus defines religion, trusting in yourself, that you're righteous and treating others with with contempt. Verse 10 says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, the Pharisees were the religious elite of the day. The tax collectors were kind of the thugs, um, sort of like the modern day slumlords. Verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of All that I get. Wow, that is very. (laughs) Um, So the Pharisee starts praying, um, and in his prayer, we kind of get a window into how he views himself, right? Like, what's the first thing he prays for, or what's the first thing he does in his prayer? He praises himself. Yeah. So he points out. uh, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's hilarious. Sorry, I'm just laughing at how how crazy he is. Um, First, he points out that all the people uh, he thinks he's better than, right? Like, he's like, hey, like, look at me. I'm so great. I'm the best. Um, I mean, I'm not perfect, but I would never do what that person did. Like, I would never do what so-and-so did. And then he explains why he thinks he's better than all of those people, and he submits his what's His spiritual resume, so to speak, right? The Pharisee's identity is completely built on his own accomplishments, Which means he looks down his nose at anyone who doesn't have the same list of accomplishments. And what's more, he is under the impression that God's affection towards him can be won by good works. Can be won by his good works, his righteousness. Verse 13, this is, But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So the tax collector's approach is totally different. He, he compares himself not to, to other people, not even to the Pharisee that's, that's beside him, but to who? To, to God. He is fully aware of his lack of spiritual resume to submit to the Lord. So he doesn't submit one. Um, he throws himself upon God's grace. Verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. So the surprise ending is that Jesus says the tax collector, the, the thug, um, goes home right before God. And the religious elite, the person who had, you know, the spiritual resume, the Pharisee, despite everything that he's accomplished, he, he doesn't. By telling the story, Jesus creates a new category of non-Christian that we often don't think about as much. Your sin can be a barrier to a relationship with Jesus, but so can your good works. You can reject uh, God by breaking all the rules or by keeping all of them perfectly. You can reject God by breaking all of the rules or keeping all of them perfectly. See, it's it's often easy for us to, to see how outright rebellion is offensive to God, right? And sometimes more, it's it's sometimes more difficult to see that our religious activity, the things that we do, can be just as offensive. Case in point, Jesus reserves some of his harshest words for people who think their religious activity makes them right with God. See, it's it's not people that act right and people who don't. That's that's not that's not the categories we're doing right. It's it's people who know they can't act right and people who think they can. Put another way, it's bad people. It's not bad people and good people. It's bad people and Jesus. It's not bad people and good people. It's bad people and Jesus. But religion also comes in lesser forms. What what we might call cultural Christianity, cultural Christianity. And maybe it's not outright I'm better than the other person, um, but more than that. Case in point, probably 75% of people in Knoxville would identify as being a Christian. Now, if you were to ask what that means, they probably say some version of, yeah, like, I own and occasionally, you know, kind of read my Bible, and, you know, sometimes I go to church, and you know what, I'm a, I'm a pretty decent person. Like, I am a moral person, I would say, you know. Um, now, that's more like religion than it is the gospel but they think that that's what being a christian is all about see religion always puts god on the wrong end of an if-then framework so if if i keep all the rules if i do everything right then god will accept me if if i'm a moral person then god owes me a good life if i got baptized when i was eight years old then God will let me into heaven when I die. It can look a lot of different ways, but it all puts God in our debt. Hmm. And especially in the South the Bible Belt, what what a lot of people think Christianity is is a little more than religion. See, Knoxville already has a tons of examples of religion. Um, religion is is literally everywhere you look. But see, what Knoxville is in need of, however, is more examples of the gospel, more people whose lives look different, not because they think God will like them more, like them better because of it, but because they've already found that God likes them fully because of Jesus. See, if we can give Knoxville examples of this gospel, if if we speak the gospel to them, demonstrate the gospel to them, then we've got a shot at giving them, uh, getting them involved in something that just might change their lives. So how do we become and stay that type of people? What does that look like? And the only way to remain gospel people is to return again and again and again and again to the gospel. So often when people
0: think about the gospel, they tend to think about it as how you become a Christian. So the gospel for a lot of people is understood as like the invitation at the end of the message, right? The part where people are asked to walk down the aisle and make a decision of some sort. Uh, we see the gospel often as sort of the diving board into Christianity. And then the way most people think about it is once you're in the pool, you move on to other things. Like you move beyond the gospel, you move to spir- spiritual disciplines or whatever it might be. The, the main thing that people think of the gospel being as is sort of the intro into Christianity. And it certainly is that, but it's not just that. So what I want us to talk about uh, today is how according to the scriptures, the gospel is not just the diving board into Christianity, it's also the very water that you swim in as a Christian. That's the big idea with the gospel for growth. So at the end of the day, the entire Christian life returns again and again to the gospel. The entire Christian life returns again and again to the gospel. So when the Bible talks about how we are to grow and mature as followers of Jesus, it will frequently just circle back to the depths of the good news of Jesus, to remembering and reflecting on the gospel. So I'll give you just a few examples. I think we've got them printed out in the booklet for you. Uh, when you ask the question, as a Christian, how do I grow in forgiveness? How do I grow in the ability to forgive people for wronging me in some way? Well, Ephesians 4.32 says, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's how we grow in forgiveness is by remembering the gospel, remembering the fact that God through Jesus forgave us in the first place. Uh, If you want to know how to grow in generosity, you want to grow in the ability to sort of loosen up your grip on your finances and use it, leverage it for the kingdom, give it away, whatever it is, uh, According to 2 Corinthians 8, Christ became poor so that we in Christ could become rich. That's how it says we grow in generosity, is by remembering that Christ emptied himself for us, and therefore now we get to empty ourselves for others. The ways we grow in generosity is by returning to reflecting on the gospel. How do you grow in becoming a better husband? Ephesians 5.25 says, Love your wife as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her. And so it gives us this picture of the way that a husband is to love a wife is by giving up himself for her sake, giving up his very life for her. And so by looking at that, we actually grow in learning how to love our wives. Uh, how do you grow in loving other people? 1 John four nineteen says we love because he first loved us. The way that we grow in loving other people is by understanding that Jesus loved us First, I'll give you one last one. Uh, How do we grow in being able to comfort other people in their suffering? So chances are you know people who are currently suffering. I I know people who are suffering. How do we grow in our ability to be present with them, to be helpful to them in their suffering? Well, according to 2 Corinthians 1, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So it brings us once again back to the gospel, how God brings us comfort through Jesus, and therefore we are equipped to show, to be able to comfort others. So this is a pattern in the Bible. You will find over and over again that when Paul wants to give instruction to New Testament Christians on how they grow and mature in the faith, he will nine times out of ten circle again, again and again to the gospel. He'll have people remember the depths of what Jesus accomplished for us, and he will be, and he reminds us of what is true of us because of that. And then he motivates us to do whatever it is that he wants to encourage us to do. But the way that we grow as a Christian is by returning again and again to the gospel. Um, so the key to growing as a Christian is not to go out and find some secret method of prayer that only one Christian author knows about, mm-hmm. okay? It, it's not finding some obscure secret passage in the Old Testament that nobody has tapped into before. <laughs> it's it's not even spiritual disciplines, even though spiritual disciplines are great. We very much believe in those here. The, the power for growth as a Christian is returning again and again to the realities of the gospel. The key to growing is remembering and applying the gospel. If you want to grow you need to steep yourself in the reality of what God has done for us through Jesus. That's the big idea with the gospel for growth.
1: Yeah, when you see yourself in light of the gospel, one thing that uh, begins to happen very naturally is what the Bible would call confession. Um, and confession is simply being honest about your sin because of the gospel. It is simply being honest about your sin because of the gospel. I think that's one of your blanks. Um, if it's true that we're all sinners uh, in need of God's grace, then there's no logical reason that I wouldn't be honest about where I'm struggling. Um, if, it, if it's true that I have no righteousness on my own, then, then I have no reason or need to save face um, by appearing more righteous than I actually am. Right? But the worst possible scenario is that people would realize that I'm a sinner. So to the degree that you understand and believe the gospel, that is the extent to which you regularly confess to the degree that you understand and believe the gospel that is the extent to which you regularly confess so for um, confession might conjure up um, some some weird images um, for you guys I don't know how many of you um, Think about this daily, but like if you're thinking about confessions, for some people it's sitting in a group and and telling your deepest and darkest secrets, so that you know other people can just look at you in silence, you know, and judge you, and that's kind of how it how it seems. Um, But that's not how it goes. That's not how it's supposed to be done. Ideally, um, for confession, it occurs within our church family in the context of just everyday life. Um, So. For example, uh, typically when Ken or Jeff or uh, Eric hang out, whenever we hang out and, like, speak to one another and ask, hey, like, how are you doing? Um, It can be very easy to give, like, a surface-level answer and be like, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. You know, and just never decide to actually answer the question. Um, But I love it um, because they're so pressing and so uh, uh, pursuing um, that they say, no, 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 tell me – tell me exactly how you're doing it like I've heard a little bit like what what's up how are you doing how how are you ml or how are, are you with anxiety all this type of stuff and in those moments I'm able to actually um, be honest and be real again about where I'm at with anxiety or where I'm at with you know control or where I'm at with my anger I'm actually able to freely confess that because again like because we're family and because of Jesus and uh, what he did on the cross, we can regularly confess to one another. Uh, we can be open and honest because I'm a sinner, they're sinners, and we're all able to connect in that type of way. Yep,
0: um, and all of that the gospel-driven confession really leads to us learning how to speak the gospel to one another, that's the next section in your booklet. Um, because we believe that the gospel has the power to change people, we want to become experts at speaking the gospel to one another. We want to become experts at speaking the gospel to one another. And it's, it's very important that we say we want to speak the gospel to one another and not necessarily just that we want to speak scripture to one another. There is a way to speak scripture to other people that is not helpful. I'll give you an example. Uh, let's say somebody in your life group Uh, has just opened up that they struggle a lot with anxiety, that they struggle with crippling anxiety. It could be about anything, but specifically that they are really wrestling with anxiety as a follower of Jesus. One thing you could say in response to them confessing that is that you could say, well, you know, Matthew six says, don't be anxious. It's like you you did speak scripture so that's a good start it's not exactly helpful in that scenario though right because chances are they're confessing it because they know they shouldn't be anxious so for you to just say the bible says not to do this is not the most helpful thing that you could offer in that moment so rather than just speaking facts from scripture or rules from scripture, what we want to become experts at is speaking the gospel to one another. So you want to be able to say something like, hey, I I know that anxiety can be crippling at times. I know it's really stressful to think about all of the things in your life that you are not in control of, but here's what I want to remind you of. I want to remind you that even on the cross, when God looked most out of control because horrible things were happening to Jesus, even in that, he used that for your good, to rescue you into his family. And if he could do that in that situation, he can use whatever situation that you're anxious about right now to be for your good as well. That's speaking the gospel into the scenario, not just speaking facts about scripture or a certain verse. Now, sometimes you're going to speak verses from scripture that are helpful in our gospel. But you want it to be motivated by that. You want to learn to speak the gospel to other people in response to their confession or just in regards to them talking about things that are going on in their life. We want to consistently speak the gospel to one another. We want the gospel to be so fresh on our lips that people encounter grace and not shame when they confess things to us. Now, for some of us, this is gonna be different at first because we're not used to it, okay? I'm not assuming that all of us will immediately just know exactly how to do this in every scenario. (laughs) Just like learning any type of other language, what do you normally have to do? So when you first start learning, let's say uh, Spanish is your second language and you're learning Spanish. At first, what you have to do is you have to hear someone else speaking Spanish to you, you have to translate that into English in your mind, you have to formulate your response and then translate that back into Spanish and say it to them. It's It's a very clunky process at first. But what happens as you practice it more and more and more, you actually don't have to do all that interpretation work eventually what happens is you learn to think so to speak in Spanish so you're not doing that back and forth you're actually just responding to them in their native language it's very similar with what we call gospel fluency around here which is just a fancy phrase for learning how to speak the gospel to one another probably when we first attempt it if you haven't done it before it's going to feel clunky and awkward and you're going to fail at it sometimes and that's totally fine What we're here to do as a community is learn how to speak the gospel over time better and better so that we can give people the hope of the gospel in their everyday life. And that really is a very central piece of what our life groups are all about here at City Church. So we want to learn how to speak the gospel.
1: Yeah, and ultimately the goal of confession um, and speaking the gospel is that it would lead to repentance. And repentance may sound like an old school term, um, but all repentance means is that it's turning from your sin and turning towards Jesus. Repentance means turning from your sin and turning towards Jesus. As Christians, turning from our sin is not just a one-time thing, right? Um, It's an all-time thing. One theologian said it like this back in the day. He says, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. So, as believers in Jesus, we should be marked by repentance. If we identify as a Christian, um, our life should be marked by ongoing repentance. And, and this should not, or this should be the norm. So, repentance includes a change of heart <clears throat> and a change in action. Repentance includes a change of heart and a change in action. So for the alcoholic, repentance looks like acknowledging the heart issue. Yes, the alcohol doesn't provide the life that Jesus does, as well as deciding to set up some boundaries around alcohol, right? So not going to bars alone or at all or refusing to keep alcohol in their house, et cetera. Now, for the person looking at porn, repentance looks like acknowledging the sin of lust. But it also looks like setting up things in their life to remind them that porn is not where life is found. Stuff like accountability software or not being at home for hours um, by themselves without having someone actually there with them. Uh, for someone who struggles with gossiping, it looks like acknowledging that gossip is wrong. But also telling people in our life, hey, like don't let me get away with this. Don't let me get away with gossiping. Call me out if you hear me gossiping. See, It's a change of heart accompanied by a change in action. And when we repent, we show the gospel to be good news, uh, the good news that it actually is. If the gospel really is good news, then returning again and again to it is far better than anything else we're chasing after. Jesus is far better than anything we're looking for in life. When we understand and believe the gospel, repentance is the best possible thing we could do. Repentance is an act of worship.
0: So as we mentioned earlier in today's class, uh, being a Christian does not mean you are better than other people. I want to be very, very clear about that. Saying that I'm a Christian does not mean I am better than other people. In fact, it probably means coming to terms with the fact that I'm a lot worse than a lot of people, right? That's what we're saying when we say that we're a Christian. We're saying we needed Jesus to die for us because we had no ability to be good people on our own, at our core which means we don't expect perfection from anybody who's a part of our church. We expect that we will all sin. We will all even sin against one another. But at the same time, we do expect, like Marcus just mentioned, that all of us who follow Jesus will be regularly and ongoingly repenting of our sin. Does that make sense? So perfection isn't expected from anybody. God does not expect perfection, but he does expect repentance. Does that make sense? So you can be an imperfect person and still be repenting of the things that you fail at. And so we don't expect perfection from anybody, but we do expect repentance if you would call yourself a follower of Jesus. And this leads to one distinctive, and we'll kind of wrap up here before we do Q&A. This leads to one distinctive of our church, and that's how we deal with sin as a church family. Because the expectation in the Bible is that followers of Jesus will be regularly and ongoingly repenting of sin. We have to know what to do when a person who calls themselves a Christian, who is a part of our church family, decides that they don't want to repent of sin anymore. When there's an area of sin in their life that is obvious, it is obviously sin, it's obviously not what the scriptures would have for them, and they just decide, you know what, I'm not going to repent of this. I'm not interested in repenting of it. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go through that process. That is part of us reflecting Jesus accurately to the world around us, is taking sin seriously when it happens, and especially taking unrepentant sin seriously. So because of that, the Bible actually goes into really specific detail of what we should do if a person in our community, a person who calls himself a Christian, they're a part of City Church, refuses to repent of some sin in their life. The traditional term for this, if you've been around church very long, is called church discipline, which sounds very official and intimidating. That word is not found anywhere in scriptures. What we're really talking about is how we deal with sin as a church family. I tend to refer to it as simply as that, how we deal with sin as a church family. So there are several places in the scriptures that outline variations of this same process. So the clearest ones, if you want to look them up on your own time, are Matthew 18, 15 through 20, 1 Corinthians 5, 11 through 13, and Titus 3, 10 and 11. I'll go through those one more time. Matthew 18, 15 through 20, 1 Corinthians 5, 11 through 13, and Titus 3, 10, and 11. These all outline variations of this process. What we should do when someone who calls themselves a Christian, calls themselves part of our church community, refuses to own up to their sin and repent of it. The basic idea is that if a person is living an open, obvious sin of some sort, if their life is out of step with the gospel and they're not making any effort to repent, You do this. And I've kind of just summarized what all three of those passages teach, but these four steps. So if they're refusing to repent, first what you do is you sit down with that person and you engage them on it. You get together with that person, just you and them alone, and you ask a lot of questions. You try to help them see that what they're doing or not doing is off, that there's something wrong with it, that it's inconsistent with the scriptures. But you do this one-on-one. You try to engage them on it one-on-one. You don't put them on blast. You don't like tweet at them or tag them in a Facebook post where you talk about their sin. You go and talk to them one-on-one where you can kind of detail out what it is that you're seeing in them. Second, if they refuse to listen to you, if after you get together with them one-on-one and you engage them on whatever it is, they just say, you know what, I think you're wrong. You're not seeing this accurately. I'm not going to do anything about this. The second step is that you go back to talk to them again with a second or maybe a third person who also knows what's going on, and you all engage them on it. You say, hey, we all see this in your life. We all think it's inconsistent with the gospel, and we want to call you to repent in this. We want to call you to own up to it, take steps of repentance out of this. If they still refuse to listen to you, if even after several of you engage this person on it, they say, nope, not interested in repenting, I don't care, it doesn't matter to me, you're seeing this wrong, whatever it is, it says that third, what you should do is that you should take it to a leader of the church so that they can help you walk through all of this with them together. So that you can actually, with the help of a pastor or a church leader, help engage them on whatever it is. And and then it says, if after all of that, and after you go through those three steps and handle them well, if that person still refuses to repent of whatever it is, whatever obvious sin is in their life, what it says we should do, specifically in Matthew 18, is it says you should treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, I realize that is a very difficult thing for us to hear, right? And chances are, some of us have even seen examples of this practice very poorly in the church, where it's considered excommunication. It's not exactly what it's getting at here, but a lot of people think that that's what it is. Because I want you to think for just a second about how Jesus treated Gentiles and tax collectors. Anybody know We talked about this a couple weeks ago, I think, in the sermon. How did Jesus treat, let's just say specifically, tax collectors? How did he interact with them? Anybody want to take a stab at it? He showed them compassion and treated them ways that the other people wouldn't. Yep, he showed them compassion. So I think a lot of people read that as you, you should treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector, and they think, wow, how cruel is that? But if you look at how Jesus treated Gentiles and tax collectors, he he loved them. He welcomed them into relationship. He cared for them. Now, here's the distinction, and here's what's really, really important. Jesus did not interact with them as if they were followers of Jesus. And I think that's what this passage is getting at. It's saying that if after you go through all of these steps for the person, and they still are refusing to repent of their sin— you don't continue to treat them like they're a follower of Jesus. Because for all intents and purposes, they're not acting like they are one. Because what a follower of Jesus would do, again, is repent. (laughs) A follower of Jesus would own up to their sin, they would see where they're off, and they would repent of it. And if a person has gone through all of this and they're still not repenting, for all intents and purposes, they don't seem to be a Christian. And so it's just saying you don't continue to treat them as if they are a follower of Jesus, because it doesn't seem like they are but you still show them compassion, you still care for them, you still love them, you still are in relationship with them. This is not like, I'm sorry, I can't talk to you anymore. Like That that would make no sense because then they would have no connection to the community of the faith that might bring them to repentance eventually. Does that make sense? But it is saying that if a person shows a pattern of not repenting, that you treat them like what they're acting like, which is a non-believer. You don't operate with the assumption that they still have an understanding of who Jesus is. Go for it. You know a lot of Christian churches. When you say about the discipline, but some of them will kick them out of the church, and not long come to the church. Yeah, I I personally mm-hmm. don't see that clearly laid out anywhere in scripture. So I think that would and be I, where I people just, are. That because yeah. the Church, I used to go in Boston. Somebody just got kicked out of the church. Discipline. Yeah. i mean, kicked out completely. You know. And, yeah. And I, I, I totally disagree about it, but sure. I didn't want to argue the past. You know. And so some of what's happening there is there's also, there's a little bit of a cultural distance between uh, what our society thinks of as church mm-hmm. and what church was in the scripture. So there is a passage, I mean, the one, I think I just mentioned it, 1 Corinthians 5 that passage does say very strong language. If you read it, it says, hand this man over to Satan. And so I think some people take that and they go, oh, that means don't associate with them anymore. Don't let them walk in the doors to your church building, all of that. The difference is the early church, especially in Corinth, was not a building and it wasn't a publicly accessible place where people would walk in from outside. So there's just a cultural distance there. When it says, hey, Uh, let this man experience what it feels like to be outside the community of faith, it's talking about the core of their church family. It's not talking about a building with doors that they walked into. Does that make sense? So that's why it wouldn't make sense to me to tell a person, oh, I'm sorry, you're in sin. You can never attend a church service here again. It's like, well... People show up at our church all the time on Sunday who I'm sure are not Christians and I'm sure are not walking in repentance and I don't like we don't check them at the door and go I'm sorry are you in unrepentance like so that wouldn't make any sense in that context yeah it's like it, it, that doesn't even make sense in practice so I think there's also there's a cultural distance there Nobody in the church allowed to speak to that person at all. Sure. They could come, yeah. but you
1: cannot speak to them at all. Mm-hmm. So which they, seems had to a, sit, they had to sit in the back, and that's
0: it. Which seems at odds with how Jesus treated tax collectors and Gentiles, right? Because he would actually initiate relationship with them like he did with Zacchaeus. Yeah. So anyway, so that's the big idea behind what we do if a person who calls themselves a member of our church, but they're in unrepentant sin, even though they claim to follow Jesus, how we would do that how we would go about engaging them on their sin, how we would talk to them about it, all of that. So hopefully that makes sense. If you got questions about it, jot that down. We can talk about that in QA. Let's do this. Um it is 310. Let's uh take bathroom break, coffee break, stretch your legs break, whatever you want to do. And at 315, let's be back in here and we'll do uh QA. So re- any questions you've got, we'll have time for that. Sound good? 315.